0: You're listening to a Policing TV podcast, Talking Crime with Danny Shaw. Welcome to Policing TV and this edition of Talking Crime with me, Danny Shaw. I'm joined today by Sergeant Simon Kempton from Dorset Police, a police officer with 22 years of experience in a variety of different roles, but Simon is also the Police Federation lead on IT. Before that, he was the representative for the use of force. Simon Kempton, thank you very much for joining us on Policing TV. It's good to see you again, Danny. At the Police Federation conference, um, you are uh, doing a session about mutual aid, which is where police officers from one force go and assist an operation in another part of the country. Um, this is something that goes on a lot, does not it, all the time, particularly for big events, for big operations, for demonstrations, protests and so on. Why is the Police Federation uh, involved in that? Why does why the Police Federation feel that they have to have a, a session about that? What are the issues?
1: Well, firstly, I'd say you're right, it's, it happens a lot mutually. And actually, increasingly, as police officer numbers dropped because of austerity over the last 10, 15 years, we've had to stretch our resources more, which has meant officers deploying to different parts of the country. Sometimes it's for pre-planned events. G7 is a good example, COP26. Sometimes it's a spontaneous event. So the riots in Bristol, for example, another good example. So whenever that happens, a force says, look, we need a bit of help, we need some more officers. Um, And we'll deploy officers either within a force to another part of the force, within a region to another part of the region, and sometimes across the country. So we could be asking officers to leave their families uh, very, very short notice, if any notice at all, sometimes, and deploy hundreds of miles away. So one of the things that the federation is saying is where we're protecting the public on these operations, where we're looking after public property and, and, and safety. Let's make sure those officers are looked after, that they're recompensed, because obviously, you might pick up care costs. Maybe you've got to put um, your child into more child care because you've had to go away. Maybe you're having to put pets into care. And, and these costs go on top of all the other cost of living rises that we've seen. So let's look after officers, let's make sure they're not worrying about the money so they can just worry about the public that they're trying to protect. I think you went up to Scotland
0: for the, uh, for the climate change did, yeah. summit, you, you were policing there, what was the experience of officers having having to go, to, to go up there?
1: Broadly I have to say very positive, so from, from day one the the operation there was very welfare focused and they they brought the Federation into that planning process. So we were able to influence the way that the operation went, particularly with one eye on, on well-being. So officers were looked after. Most of the accommodation was a very good standard. Most of the food was a very good standard. And where there were issues, the Federation were able to intervene quite quickly with the operational planners and get things improved. It highlighted there's one or two areas we've still not really learned lessons, some inclusivity issues, around food, for example, but we're getting better as a police service, and the Federation's played a really important part at highlighting those. Because I suppose in some cases you might have hundreds of officers going. Thousands sometimes. Thousands. I mean, COP26 was the largest movement of, of UK police officers ever. Bigger than the Olympics, bigger than wartime. It was immense. Right at the middle of the operation, where it got very busy with protests and demonstrations, 14,000 officers on duty in one 24-hour period. It was immense. And when you've got that many officers, there's a lot of scope for things to maybe go awry with welfare and and things like that. But I have to say, broadly, it was a very, very positive experience. We had COVID on top of that. We had officers going down with positive COVID tests. So how do you make sure that that didn't spread amongst their, their colleagues, putting people into isolation, but then making sure they're looked after? They don't get forgotten and they're not just stuck in a hotel room for a fortnight. So it was interesting. How swift is is the system of mutual aid?
0: I mean, can it be sort of put into operation if there was some disorder, let's say, you know, in a part of the country this evening? Would would it be possible for officers to, you know, quickly be deployed from another part of the country?
1: Yeah, there's operational plans in place to, to move officers immediately. And every force has got a requirement to be able to deploy a certain number of officers within a certain time frame. And the longer the time frame, the more officers. Um, and there's regularly um, drills that take place across the country mm. where there'll be a, a practice and how many, right now, as of this right now, how many officers can we deploy if we had to? And can we meet our obligations? Um, and that helps forces to learn where maybe we need to train more people. And one of the things that we've seen in the public order arena is sometimes fewer officers volunteering for those roles whether it's because of the way that, you know, sometimes those, those roles get perceived in the media. Um, you know, and you're doing your job. I mean, I, I look at what some of my colleagues went through in Bristol, um, facing huge danger. I mean, in, in a, a, a police vehicle that got set on fire, literally got set on fire while you're in it. Um, and some of the press was negative about those officers. So, it, you know, sometimes police officers says, why would I why would I volunteer for something like that? And the federation's got a part to play there speaking to people like yourself speaking to the media and saying look there's another side to this these officers putting themselves on the line to keep your house keep your family safe Mm -hmm. in really trying circumstances yeah um it's a key part of our role a very rewarding part of my role
0: so i mean one of the one of the issues of course is that we're approaching the summer months uh there's a potential For protests, for disorder, we know that there's a cost of living crisis. There's a number of key events as well, and it's a time when you know some
1: some tensions could bubble to the surface. I think you're absolutely right. But even without those issues, putting them to one side for a moment, it's going to be a really busy summer for policing. We've got the Platinum Jubilee event coming up, a long weekend where there'll be, you know, hopefully a lot of celebration across the country, but that requires a policing presence sometimes. Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, it's going to be a huge policing event, thousands of police officers to keep that safe. Sporting events and other iconic events that always happen every year that the police need to facilitate. But like I say, you're absolutely right, on top of that, what we see traditionally is where the economy struggles and people people start to struggle to feed their families, maybe they're losing their jobs. We do tend to see a rising crime and a rising disorder as those frustrations bubble over. Um, so I, I fear we could have quite a busy summer um, from that perspective as well. And my colleagues are going to be putting themselves on the line left, right and centre, actually, I think.
0: Now, I mean, that brings us on to one of the other aspects of, of, of policing, which you had the lead for for a number of years, which was use of force. That's right. Um, and we've had an announcement uh, from the Home Secretary Recently, uh, that uh, tasers are going to be made available to special constables. We know that the government has supported the rollout of tasers to more officers, this government. And yet there's always the other side, which is you hear about cases in which people have collapsed
1: after being tasered and sadly died. So where do you stand on that? I'd have to say firstly, I'd have to acknowledge that the government have been supportive. uh, And I'm grateful to the government for that rollout. And the reason I say that is tasers save lives, not just police officers' lives, actually not just the public's lives. Tasers save the lives of criminals, which seems counterintuitive, but without taser, sometimes the only recourse we might have to someone brandishing a knife is to shoot them with a conventional firearm. Now, taser isn't safe, it's just safer than many of the other options. Very little that the police do is intrinsically safe because it always comes with risk which is why we've got so much training in risk mitigation and the use of force. So I'm hugely supportive of the wider rollout. I'm hugely supportive of of special constables being given access to Taser. I think that's important. But what it does mean is the government have to follow that through with more investment in more units. It's brilliant that we've got more tasers on the street to keep people safe, but let's make sure that that investment is there so we don't have people who are trained but no taser on their hip. Right. So you actually need more equipment? I think so. Uh, absolutely. And that does come with an investment at a time when, when funds are tight. But that investment will keep people safe. It will save lives. And do you think there's any extra training
0: that's required for people who might be volunteering you know, I, I don't, just a few days a month? Um, And they may not get to use that taser very often if they're volunteers. That's the concern, isn't it? If you're a a police officer that's working full time, you know, all the shifts, um, you know, you're going to be in situations more often. Whereas suddenly, if you're a special constable volunteer, three, four months could elapse without you even having to draw your taser. Uh,
1: Again, you're right to highlight it. And and that's the same with a lot of the, the, the roles that we take on. Um, so well, one of the roles that I do is a hostage negotiator, and that involves me driving on blue light sometimes. But now that I'm not a frontline police officer, I don't do it very often. So we have to build that into my training to make sure that I'm still safe to do that. And it's the same with TASER. So it's acknowledged that special constables won't have the opportunity to, to keep that muscle memory going as often. So their training will be slightly different, but they'll still have to reach the same standard that I would if I were TASER trained. Uh, And that's really important. Those standards are the highest in the world, I think, um, in terms of the way that we we train people to use um, force and to use equipment. And that's not going to be watered down at all.
0: Now, turning to your portfolio at the moment, which is IT, police IT. We know that there are some very big IT projects um, coming coming the way of the police service, uh, the replacement for the airwave radio, ESN is one of them. I think there's a new police database uh, that's being led by the Home Office and so on. For officers on the ground, how many marks out of 10 would you give um, the technology that's available for the average officer?
1: It, it wouldn't be a good mark. It would be a low mark. Um, without five, putting a number more, on three. it, <laughs> it wouldn't reach five. It'd be lower than five. I'll explain why. All you want as a police officer when you go to work is to have the tools to do the job to the standard that that you want to do it for the public. You join the police to help people. And if there's something in the way of stopping you helping people, it's frustrating, it's soul destroying, it's demoralizing. So the very least we should expect is the police officers going out there to put themselves on the line. They've got the tools that they need to keep people safe. And increasingly in today's world, those tools are technology-based. Whether it's a communications device, whether it's a, a laptop, um, whether it's your radio, it could be a whole range of things. And increasingly, we see a gap between the provision we give to police officers and the equipment that criminals have. And that gap is widening. And What I mean by that is they've got access to better kit that works better more often um, and we're behind the curve increasingly. That can't be right. In specialist areas, that's not quite the same, but I'm talking about your, your, your average Bobby on the street. You'll have a radio that doesn't always work with um, dead spots, uh, and that's been a, an issue with, with the airwave terminals. Still? Still an issue? Still, yeah, particularly where you go into buildings sometimes. ESN was supposed to overcome that, but that's ESN... The, the emergency services network that's replacing airwave. Apparently. I say apparently because um, it should have already been rolled out across the country, and we haven't yet. It's, it's several years behind schedule. It's many, many millions of pounds behind budget. Uh, and I've got a real fear that what we're going to end up with when it does finally get delivered looks nothing like the promise from years ago when we started the the ESM project. We were told that it would have things like live streaming um, data. You'd be able to, from the scene of a, a crime, you'd be able to live stream the scene back to your control room. Stuff that actually we do, you know, during COVID, If you think about it, that's what we were doing with our families. We were live streaming our lounge to their lounge. Members of the public can do it dead easily. For some reason, we can't. That can't be right, and it holds us back. Um, And your concern is that ESN isn't going to be capable of doing that? I don't think it will. I mean, in in fact, I'm as certain as I can be that it won't do everything we were promised that it would, Um, because of budget restraints, because there's a real push now just to get it rolled out. so I am worried about that and I I, I remember on a practical example um, my last team before I came to this role when I was on 24-7 response shifts we had a high risk missing person on a heath um, and it was dark and it was wet and we were really worried about them and their mum was trying to explain to us where they would normally go a part of the heath that was special to them but particularly in the dark it was really difficult to find and my team and I we broke policy and we used WhatsApp with a map pin to try and locate the individual, and we found them. And each of us broke policy by doing that at the time. So we had to put our, our careers on the line, which I don't want to over the pudding, but certainly we knew we were doing the wrong thing in terms of policy in order to keep somebody alive. So that's a really good example of where our policies fall behind. Um, so it's not just about technology, it's about how we use the technology. Mm-hmm. When I first joined the police all those years ago, crime prevention advice was put a padlock on your shed. Make sure your windows are closed. Now a huge swathes of crime are cyber enabled. And what that means is it doesn't necessarily take place online, but the online world facilitates that crime. So it might be, for example, back in the day, somebody would steal a, uh, a, a mountain bike and they would go and sell it at the pub or sell it you know down on the street somewhere. Increasingly now, the thief will take that item, bike, whatever it might be, and they'll sell it online, on one of the online marketplaces. We're behind the curve on that. Police officers who respond to 999 calls, they don't necessarily get the training in how best to help the public. Specialist units are brilliant. They're amongst the world's best. But there's not that many of them. I'm talking about the people responding to your 999 call. Let's give them the training and the tools they need to keep people as safe as possible.
0: Because it should be comfortable for them to be able to give um, IT security advice as comfortable as they would be you know, giving um, security advice about securing a
1: shed or, or, or securing their bike. Absolutely that. Absolutely. It should be just a, a normal part of the job that we're very comfortable with because it's a normal part of the world that we live in now. Yeah. For, for, for the officer on the street, not the specialist... They've
0: got an airwave radio. Are they allowed to carry their own
1: iPhone or smartphone and use that where necessary? It changes slightly from force to force, which I mean, earlier on, talk about mutual aid. That could become an issue because it's all very well my own force policy and I'm all fait with it. But If I go to work in London or Birmingham or, or, or here in Manchester, maybe there's a different policy I fall under because I come under the control of that chief constable while I'm there. But yeah, some forces will say, um, you know, quite forward thinking, I would say, um, there's technology here, let's put a framework so it's safe to use and it's proper to use, but let's use it. Other forces really shy away from it. So within my region, I I mentioned earlier, I do some hostage negotiation. My force allows the operational use of WhatsApp. If that's the only way that you can communicate with somebody who's in crisis, maybe Mm -hmm. another force in my region who I've worked with and I've deployed with as a negotiator, they just don't allow what's up the top. And that can be a real blocker to communication sometimes. Right. So there are issues around that. Some forces um, issue devices that come preloaded with a lot of these apps, others don't. And there's some real quick wins. So for example, the law is a complicated old beast. There's so many different offenses that as a patrol officer you might be asked to investigate. Very, very difficult to be an expert in every part of that. You've got your theft out, you've got your road traffic out, you've got all sorts. Well, let's preload onto these devices what the law says in really easy to understand, easy to retrieve. So if you're dealing with you know, something under the Badger Act or you know, that you don't often deal with, you know, and it might be years since you last dealt with it, mm-hmm. let's go onto the device so you can see. And there's apps out there that, that officers are paying for that gives them that information at their fingertips, why aren't the College of Policing doing their own version that they could control, they'd be very happy with the detail and the data on there, the information was up to date, and every police officer in the country would be able to go straight to the Badger Act and go, that's what it says.
0: Where are the blockages to getting to a a better
1: IT situation, would you say, in your view? One of the big ones is interoperability. So I don't believe, for reasons of, competition mm. uh, and the innovation that competition drives I don't believe that there should be one provider more providers means more innovation but I firmly believe before any provider can go to the marketplace within policing they have to be able to be sure that they're compatible with the other software and in some cases hardware that's out there uh, and for the techies uh, amongst us it's, it's called an open API and basically all it means is two systems can talk to each other. So the reason, I I took a photograph over the weekend and I uploaded it to Instagram and it automatically uploaded it to Twitter and to Facebook. The reason is, although two of them are owned by Meta, the reason for that is they've decided that they're going to be able to talk to each other. In policing, we don't do that. Now, I'm a Dorset police officer. We're in a strategic alliance with Devon and Cornwall, that means we're in a very, very close relationship. We share human resources, we share operation departments. I can't get into a Devon and Cornwall police station with my fob, and I can't log on to a Devon and Cornwall computer. That seems odd. Madness. Never mind trying to speak to a colleague from Kent or Cumbria or wherever. And again, goes back to mutual aid. I, I might get deployed to Cumbria to to um, facilitate a protest, say. And unless I take my laptop with me and there's issues there with connectability, I can't get onto a police IT system in the year 2022. It seems odd. Because I bet if you're a criminal, you can use the same systems wherever you are in the country or the world. But these are issues that we've been discussing for years. years. Absolutely years.
0: <laughs> are we any closer to, to fixing it unless we have one national police force, which
1: is not gonna happen? It's not. and I don't necessarily think it would be a good thing if we did. Um, We we keep taking baby steps towards what I see as the solution, which is around interoperability, um, but then we'll draw back. I think it takes political will from the the Home Office to say, Chief Constables, you've got operational um, um, independence. I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but I am going to tell you from today, IT will have to fit these criteria. Um, and that way, producers would be forced to have things like an open API. So we've got two main systems, not only two systems, some forces got their own systems. But you've got uh, Athena that gets used in a lot of forces, and you've got uh, Niche that gets used in a lot of forces. Trying to send documentation or a file or a case preparation from an Athena computer to a Niche comp it's the devil's own work. It's so difficult, and it shouldn't be in this day and age.
0: Yeah. Simon, I just finally just want to turn on to a slightly more personal um, issue. You've been through a misconduct process um, recently um, in respect of some messages or communication that you had following the Wayne Cousins case. What was that process like for you
1: individually? I I should probably put a little bit of meat on the bones. Um, So my role... Uh, is I'm one of eight officers who runs the the Federation on a day-to-day basis, Um, and I was made aware that Mr Cousins had made certain um, admissions during his interview. Um, he denied murder, but he'd admitted kidnap, basically. And I was really concerned that the Police Federation might end up paying this guy's legal bill, because we had no idea that that had happened, Um, because the operational investigation team didn't tell us that. And we've been, we've been hurt reputationally in the past, understandably, where we've funded people who've subsequently turned out to have been guilty of some really horrible offences. So I told my colleagues, the other seven, uh, and one of them felt that um, it was inappropriate for me to do that. So an investigation started. That investigation took a, a year. And it doesn't just affect the, the officer, it affects their family, it affects their colleagues, it affects relationships. And one of the, the, one of the key things the IOPC could do... The Independent the Office Independent for Police, Office, Police Conduct. Yeah. Um, one of the key things they could do is really focus on timeliness of their investigations and also proportionality. You know, we've, we've got colleagues today who we can see have acted in good faith. They've done what they thought was the best at the time. They haven't been bad. They haven't been corrupt. At worst, they've made a mistake that there's some potential learning from. And we'll drag them through a process for sometimes two, three years. And we've got police officers who've joined to help people, who then become really disaffected. And it's very, very difficult to get them back into the workplace and be enthusiastic because it's destroyed lives. We can do better. We should do better. I mean,
0: was that the case with you, in a sense? Your investigation took a year. You You were acting as you thought, in the best interest of, of the police federation, trying to be helpful, trying to assist, and yet you found yourself on the receiving end of a misconduct
1: investigation. And you do question what, you know, it, it would be very easy to become embittered. It would be very easy to to throw your hands up in the air and say, not for me anymore. I mean, I was very, very lucky. I had a lot of support um, from, from colleagues within the federation. My family were fantastic. I was very, very lucky. Um, but it drives a wedge between the officer and the parent organisation, the police service. So I've had to be very careful to make sure that wedge doesn't um, force us too far apart. Um, difficult not to take it personally, though. Yes. What, what happened at the end of the process? I have received a warning, yeah. So I've, I've, I've now got to live with that for the next couple of years. It stays uh, on your file for how long? Two years. Right. A written yeah. warning. Yeah. 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 So... Um, It's it's, it's difficult and I'm I'm a a liberal, I believe that we need a strong investigative function to make sure the state doesn't overreach, to make sure the state doesn't go too far, to make sure that the police act within the rules. That's really important in the sort of society that I want to live in. But if we've got men and women putting everything on the line, doing the most incredibly difficult jobs, having to take split second decisions, well let's recognise that in the process. And let's not hang out people out and their families, you know, their husbands, their wives, their children, they didn't join the police, they didn't sign up for this. But it ruins families, it breaks families because of the stress. Every, every year we'll get, you know, around 30 police officers commit suicide. The amount of those who are under investigation, when we had one sadly, uh, a colleague, literally just in the last few weeks, uh, in another part of the country, um, took their own life under these circumstances. And it happens time, we've got officers who are having to go off long-term sick, being medicated um, because of the stress and anxiety, because of the uncertainty. And people I speak to, and, and you know, personally I, I can understand it when they say it, they would rather go to a job and face somebody with a knife or another sort of weapon than face this. Because you, when you join the police, you know that that's going to happen. You don't realise the way that the, the complaint system will will cast you aside. And only subsequently, after you've been cleared or after it's finished, will they say, all right, you can come back now. Mm-hmm. It's a dysfunctional relationship. Too often forces forget that they've got a duty of care to people. Even if they're guilty of doing some really horrible things, you've got a duty of care to that individual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good that, You've
0: got through that process, and you're still serving, and you weren't deterred, and 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 you didn't decide just to throw it all throw it all in and jack it all in, do something else. So that's good to see, Simon, that you've done that. And thank you very much for talking to us on Policing TV.
1: Thank you. Good to see you again, thanks, Danny.